I forgot that today was Lessons and Carols Day. It's always a kind of pleasant surprise. I'm supposed to have my kids here at a certain time too. That didn't, that didn't work out real well. <laughs> There's always that one parent, you know. There's always that one parent. That's us. Okay, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Good morning. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together today, and we're we're thankful that you continue to encourage us and strengthen us in our in our worship together and our in our life of common prayer, but also in the preaching of the word and, and in our study of the word in these classes. And I, I pray, Lord, that you will bless our time together, that you'll strengthen us, that you'll give the teacher wisdom and and, and insight, and Father, that you'll open up the minds and the hearts of those who are here to listen, and, and we do all these things in anticipation because we know that your word is alive and it's dynamic and powerful. And it, it has the ability to pierce right into the very marrow of our being, and uh, we ask for you to do that even this morning, and we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, come on in. I think where's, where's is there room in the end? Uh, got some seats here. Sis and Jerry have been saving seats. Um, I uh, th- there was a really neat conference here this week at the at the Advent that was held for clergy and theological educators from around the the Episcopal Church. Those who still might, uh, you know, those in the Episcopal Church who still identify themselves as. Um, Within the uh, um, orthodox stream of the tradition, I guess, and it was really a good time. I, I was glad to be be able to meet some of these folks and to be a part of that. Um, I, I will say, someone asked a question to me at the conference that has spurred on some thinking. Do we need to get we can get more chairs around here? I'm sure. Um, what, what do we have here? Oh, do they keep chairs back here? Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Was that in the knee? Great. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right. A few more. You need help getting down? Need <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, sorry about that. I caught him right in the knee coming up. Anyway, the, que- the question that was asked was about, I-, I come out of the Reformed tradition. I've said this to many of you before. So I, I, uh, I-, I grew up in a world where there was long preaching. Um, and most of my church experience has been long preaching. And when I say long preaching, I mean like, you know, minimum 30 minutes, but not unusual to go 45 minutes to 50. Um, and I was, re- I was reading a-, a little book by Roy Short yesterday. A hit, it was, it's a short history of the, of the English parish church. Really interesting. It's an Anglo-Catholic take on what's happened, but it's an interesting history of, of the English parish. And you know, I mean, the, the, the history of the long sermon has, has a long um, shelf life. I mean, within Calvin's Geneva, sermons were an hour long. 
um, there within the English church as well during the Reformation period, sermons were long. Not all of the ordained clergy during the time of Cranmer were um, actually licensed to preach. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? But that, I, I, I'm not sure I even knew that. But not all the clergy were allowed to preach. In other words, you could do the sacrament, you could do the liturgy, but you had to get a special license to preach. And if you weren't licensed to preach, then there was a, there were books of homilies um, from which you could read. Uh, and Cranmer wrote these books of book of homilies, and then I think Bishop John Jewell wrote another book of homilies, and these would be read read publicly. And they're kind of long. I, I I don't know if you've ever read any of Cranmer's homilies, a fruitful exhortation to the reading of Scripture on justification and good works. I mean, they're very they're great homilies, by the way. But I imagine the public reading of them would be a, be a, probably about a thirty minute ordeal, as is my hunch. Uh, you know, Anglican. Episcopal sermons now are kind of short. You know, that's just the nature of the beast. And um, I, I mean, I can just imagine for some of the people from the kind of sermons that I grew up listening to, if they heard you have 12 minutes to bring the goods on that text, they'd be like, I can't even get out of the gate. I mean, how, how am I going to tell all my jokes? Now, I will say this. I mean, th- th- this is just us friends talking this morning. My, 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 my sense is a lot of these 45-minute sermons would have been better in 20. I imagine it's us talking, right? Um, you know, there's an old line from Mark Twain where Twain said, I would have written you a, um, a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Um, you know, whittling things down to be a rifle shot rather than a shotgun blast is a hard thing. Matter of fact, one of the first times that one of my children heard me preach publicly you know, your ch- children will be honest, right? I mean, they're going to be honest. And I asked said child, how did you think it went? And he said, well, I thought you repeated yourself a lot. This, this was the conversation with a similar child. He said, you use stories pretty well, but not as good as Ken and Joe. Ken and Joe is much better at that. <laughs> and uh, he said that. And then he said, and also, it just seemed like you just didn't, um, you, you needed, you didn't know how to stop it. Uh, that's what he said. <laughs> I said all those things, right? I said, so what you were saying was the, the airplane kept circling the airport, but didn't la- I didn't know how to land the plane. Like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Now, so my sense is a, lo- a lot of long sermons would be better, shorter, but all, all this to say, it could be a stream of consciousness here, but all this to say, um, the person asked me, what do you think about um, the, lo- the, the sermonic life in an Episcopal setting or a liturgical setting, given the length of the sermon? How does that work when it comes to communicating the Word of God to the people of God. I mean, this is at the heart of what it means to be within the Protestant tradition is a lot of the liturgy was streamlined and cleared so that the Word of God would become central and the hearing moment of the Word of God as the Word is read and then preached would become would come toward the center of what it meant uh, to be, um, to be a, a Protestant, to be a Christian and to be a, a worshiper. Um, and as I thought on that question, the answer to that that came to me, and I think it's been my instinct for a while, is there is something very rich about a sermon that's exhortative. Like what we heard this morning, right? There's an exhortation here. There's no misgivings in the sermon that I have to do everything that this text has the potential to do. Um, I, I grew up in a kind of expository preaching tradition and then imbibed it even more so as I got into my early 20s that understood the preaching moment as engaging a biblical text to its full. In other words, you engage every significant issue that's there, you wring the juice out of that text, 
to where really now it's, you know, the, the grapes have been wrung out and the wine process is over and you move on. I mean, this is why, I mean, this might sound crazy to some of you, but I, I was in churches on staff at a church. We took three and a half years to go through Romans. Right? Have any of you been in churches like that? We took three years to do John. We took two years to do Hebrews. I mean, it's that kind of thing. And there's something beautiful about that kind of preaching and teaching, I would say. The danger, though, is an understanding of the Word of God that becomes mechanistic. In other words, I apply my method to the biblical text. I wring it of all of its potential. And now we've got Romans 1. Got that part down. We, we, matter of fact, if we come back to that in 30 years, fine. But just listen to the tape. We did that, right? And I, to my mind, that's a misunderstanding of the character of God's Word that's alive and dynamic that has the potential to do more and more again and again in the life of the church because the Bible is alive. It's not inert. It's not just a scientific object. It's an alive and living medium by which the Spirit of God communicates His very self to us. So as I thought about that in relationship to what goes on here at the Advent, it made me thankful for what we get to do in here. This was my answer to the question. What do you think about Episcopal sermons, Anglican sermons that are so short given our call to the centrality of the Word? And my understanding is that that works at its best when you have robust preaching connected to a robust teaching life in the life of the church. And admittedly, not every church has the, the resources and the wherewithal to do all of that. I just, it just made me, as I thought about that this week, grateful and thankful for this place in the sense that we do take that seriously. And why do I say that? Well, when in the world, given our three-year lectionary cycle, are we here at the Advent or any Episcopalian or Roman Catholic or Methodist, whoever's doing the revised three-year lectionary, when are they going get, to get to spend time in Zechariah? Well, I don't know when, actually. Maybe on the odd Advent Sunday, but who's going to preach that text? You've got Zechariah there, and you've got Luke 2 or the Magnificat or something like that. Luke's going to win every day of the week, right? So where are you going to get an opportunity? I just, it makes me grateful that we get to do this kind of thing here. Now, why are we doing Zechariah? That, that was completely off script, but I just, I just wanted to share that with you. Why, why are we going to do Zechariah again? Well, really, because I didn't get to finish last time. Um, some, I started this series in the fall, and somehow it just sort of ended. I don't know what happened. I, I, I was getting ready for the next Sunday, and I looked at my calendar, and I'm like, oh, you're, you're done with that class now. Um, so uh, I, this, this is my opportunity to kind of just hop into it a little bit more, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe tie the bow on the package a little bit. And this is what I want to do. We have three weeks together. I'd like to look at text in Zechariah. Um, and by the way, this is your homework. Right, you're going to have a quiz next week. I'm joking. You, none of you will come. Um, your homework is to maybe just spend some time reading this book. It is a wild ride. And, and there's a reason why I have avoided it for a long time. Um, it is a complicated book. I'm going to show you something today in Zechariah chapter 6 that will indicate for you there's a lot about Zechariah that's not easy to seal off. It's not necessarily easy to say, well, that's what that means. Let's move on to the next bit. It's, um, there are challenges. So over the next three weeks, what I'd like to do is move into to three vignettes in the book of Zechariah to talk about things that are Adventy in nature. right? And I mean by that the season of Advent in nature. And I'm talking about um, prophetic moments that are uh, preparing for us a sense of anticipation of the coming of our Lord. Now... 
Um, today, what I want to look at, I want to look at with you Zechariah chapter 2 and Zechariah chapter 6. And Zechariah 6 ends the vision cycle. For those of you who were here before, you'll remember that the first six chapters of Zechariah, if we were to put out a kind of um, a larger architectonic of the book of Zechariah, right, a big outline of it, it would look something like this, I think. Zechariah chapters 1 through 6 are a, vis- are a cycle of eight night visions that Zechariah has. And then you have chapters 7 and 8, which which I think function as their own block of material. Um, and we might tap into chapter 8 a little bit next week, but chapters 7 and 8 are their own block of material. And then you have 9 to 14, which is the third part of the book. So it's not bad to think of Zechariah as an A, B, C kind of triptych um, or trifold form where you have visions and then moves into a middle block that calls for justice and calls for future restoration. And then you move into the latter part, 9 to 14, which are these final um, visions or oracles that, uh, that Zechariah, uh, the prophet, has. And our last two weeks will focus on Zechariah 9 to 14. Um, so if you have to choose what to read coming in for next week and the following, we'll do Zechariah chapter 9 to 14. Um, and then to, to put the card just a little bit in reverse, because I know we haven't, for those of you who haven't, maybe some of you weren't even in the class, um, Zechariah is a book that's nestled right here at the end of the Minor Prophets. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, some of you maybe had to memorize the books of the Bible when you were little. Right? Hosea, jo- uh, Am- Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, then you have Nahum, and then you start getting into the post-exilic prophets after the exile. Uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, I mean Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and then Malachi. Um, so here you have those books that are laid out, and Zechariah is the second to the last of the prophetic books in the Minor Prophets, or, or what's often referred to as the Book of the Twelve. Very early in the life of the Minor Prophets, they started to travel on a single scroll. You have Isaiah on a scroll, Jeremiah's on a scroll, Ezekiel's on a scroll, and then the twelve minor prophets are all on a scroll together. And we also begin to see, as you look closely in the minor prophets, some tipping and tucking that's going on where there's something about these twelve books that they've been arranged and ordered and thematically linked in such a way to tell us that the whole of the minor prophets is more than just the sum of their parts. Hosea plus Joel plus Amos. It's not that. There's something about the structure of the Twelve as a whole that indicates for us something, uh, I think, rather important about how we understand interpretively the whole of these of these minor prophetic uh, books. Um, so here you have uh, Zeph- Zechariah as the second to the last of these prophetic books. Now, I shouldn't have been doing this. Okay, don't tell anybody. But I was reading a little bit of Zechariah during the service today. I could listen to the choir, too. So I, had to, I was reading, right? Uh, so I was just double-tasking double there. And um, and again, just as I got into chapters 10 and 11 reading this, that was somewhere in the middle of the service today, um, I, I was just struck again by how significant former prophetic voices are that are then being recalibrated into the current moment. I'm going to give you an example of this. I, I, don't, I don't even know if commentaries talk about this or not, but I was quite taken by this. The end of Zechariah chapter 10. Uh, this is what he says about Egypt and, and Assyria and the Nile. He says, The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong. Who's this? The nations strong. Egypt. These are all the enemies of God's people. 
These are the goyim, you, you, you type of people, me too. But I'm going to make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His name. Now you hear that? They shall walk in His name. Listen to Micah chapter five, um, 4, verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You hear that? All the peoples, that is all the nations, in the meantime, they're going to walk in the name of their God. But we're going to walk in the name of our Lord God forever and ever. Well, what's the presentation here at the end of Zechariah chapter 10? I will make them strong. Who? Those nations that back in Micah chapter 4 are in the meantime still walking in the name of their God. Now they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. Now, you don't see Zechariah here saying, and like Micah said back on page 375 of your pew Bible, they don't do that. The prophets don't do that. But the prophets, especially the latter prophets, the post-exilic prophets, um, they are marked by their reading of the former prophetic literature that shows up again and again as they redeploy it. We'll see that, uh, uh, my sense is, that, that Zechariah right here is making an intentional appeal to Micah chapter 4, verse 5, but he's doing so in a way that's um, echoing, intertextual. He's not shouting it. It's, um, it's an intertextual embeddedness. Some of you have, uh, some of you like the writings of T.S. Eliot, and if you can make sense of it, you're my hero, right? I just think you're an amazing person. April is the cruelest month. Well, I guess so. I don't know what that means, but it, I guess it is. Um, so you read it, you know, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and what do you see with, with Eliot's writings? Well, you see, um, this incredible ability to bring former voices, whether they're intellectual voices, whether they're poets, whether they're authors, Carthage, Carthage is burning, all of the, and he'll, he'll make a, a quip to Augustine. But Eliot's not telling you one time, like Augustine said in Book 9 of the Confessions, or like Homer said in the third book of the Iliad. Well, he's just peppering all the way through the wasteland these incredible literary illusions. That's referred to today technically as intertextuality. Older text being embedded in new text for the sake of the older word being made new again in a new moment of a literary life, or from our understanding, the prophetic life of the ministry of the word. So what you see here in Zechariah is Zechariah is reading the prophets. He's hearing the prophets that come before him. And he's redeploying the prophetic word into the new moment. And Zechariah here is located right before we get to Malachi, to my mind, at a rather signal position that is creating a sense of anticipation and hope um, for God's future kingdom and for God's future making good on his covenantal promises. Now, you know what happens when the Old Testament ends? The credits are rolling. It's like sitting in the movie, and you're sitting in the movie there, and you think, I've just seen an incredible movie, but I need, I think, another hour or so to let this thing come together. Have you had that experience before? My wife and I went and saw, I can't remember what it was, this Prisoner's movie or something like that with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, where they think that somebody's kidnapped their daughter, or some, I can't remember all the details of it. It's not, it's not a happy sort of holiday movie. Um, and the movie ends in a way that you, and then the credits are rolling, and you're like, uh, how's that going to work out, right? Uh, the Old Testament ends that way. We're promised a future king. We're going to talk about that today. 
We're promised a future priest. We're promised the restoration of the kingdom. And here they are on the far side of the exile, on the far side of their destruction, back in the land. Zechariah's name means the Lord will remember. That's what it means. And for those of you who've read your Psalms enough, you know that that word remember is an important term within the Old Testament's frame of reference. Why? Because God remembering is an act of His making good on His covenantal promises. It's not God calling to mind something that He forgot. It's God remembering Himself, remembering His own promises, remembering to make good on them. Noah's out there on the sea, you know, flopping around. And then the Bible says in Genesis, and God remembered Noah. Now, read from one vantage point, that could be a rather disconcerting word. Like, oh yeah, Noah's out there floating around. Got to get that guy. It's not that. It's, I'm now going to make good on my promises to Noah. Now's the moment. Zechariah's name intimates that. God will remember. God will not forget His promises. He will not forget to make good on His promises even in ways that go beyond your own frame of reference and your own, your own frame of understanding. Why? Because on the far side of the exile, as they come back into the land and they find the land in the ruins, the walls are crumbled down, the temple has been destroyed, the infrastructure governmentally is all gone. It is a mess. So all the promises that we heard about Um, we come back to the land and it doesn't seem to be working out. And to make matters worse, when the wall is rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt for the second time, those who see it go, "Eh, that's not very impressive. Matter of fact, we remember, some of us have heard about the first temple. Maybe some of us can even recall it in our memory. This isn't even close. It's a pale comparison to Solomon's temple, what we have here. So how can this be a making good on God's promises when it's not even as good as it once was before? And that's the, the ministry that Zechariah has to the people on the far side of the exile to remind them and to tell them, and I think we'll see clues of this in the book of Zechariah, that God's rebuilding of the wall, God's rebuilding of the temple, all of these promises that, he's, that He is fulfilling for you now, these are proleptic intimators of something so much more. Because the word that expresses how huge God's salvific promises will be to His people, it doesn't correspond to reality on the ground for them. And here, Zechariah is now beginning to paint a picture for them of the future to point them to the fact that, yes, God has brought you back. He has redeemed you. You're not in exile anymore, but this is not my final answer. This is not my final word. This is not the final means by which I will bring my covenant promises to bear. And so with that in mind, let's look at Zechariah chapter 2. And then we'll get to Zechariah chapter 6. And we're going we're gonna to do this fast. Okay. Verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Now I want you to, this is a, this is a little Bible study 101 uh, uh, point here. Um, pronouns really matter in the Old Testament. And they're not always easy to put together, frankly, who the referent is. Uh, the, the, the Bible will move from first person I to third person he, she, and it can leave you in a little bit of what we might call pronominal whiplash. All right? now, so, so listen to pronouns here. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares who? Declares Adonai, Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. 
And many nations shall join themselves to who? Tetragrammaton, the Lord, in that day, and they shall be my people. Again, that's a, just a profound claim here. We heard Isaiah chapter 40 read this morning, didn't we? Comfort, comfort who? My people. That's covenant language. That's Israel language. That's Judah language. And what is God saying here? Many nations will come from afar. They will join themselves to the Lord and they will be who? They will be my people. It's a really profound statement here about the inclusion, the missionary character of our God. Right? They should be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, I'm going to read this to you again and see if you see where the problem is. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Who's dwelling in their midst? What's the promise here in chapter 10? What's the cause for the rejoicing and the singing in Israel and in Judah? Because the Lord promised, the Lord Himself, Adonai, Yahweh, I'm going to be in your midst. I'm going to dwell with you. And many nations will stream, and they're going to be my people as well. And then what does it say in verse 10? And, the, and then they will know that Tetragrammaton, the Lord, has sent me to you. So this is the question, who exactly is dwelling in the midst here? The Lord or the me who has been sent? Do you see the problem? But who is it? John, I was reading Calvin's commentary on Zechariah here on this passage. And, I mean, again, Calvin is a close, this is a problem that we have to deal with in the text itself. And Calvin says, well, who could it be other than the Lord Christ? Who could the me be that the Lord sent who could be distinct from the Lord sending him and at the same time be Adonai in their midst? You see the, the tension there? It's, it's actually a profound thing. And here Calvin then begins to wax eloquent on the fact that it could only be said of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that he both shares in the essence and the being of God and can be sent on mission by God at the same time. Who else can that be said of? Certainly can't be said of Zerubbabel. Can't be said of Joshua the high priest. This can only be something that is said of the Lord Jesus himself. So what's the promise here? What's the cause in Zechariah chapter 2 for singing and rejoicing? Answer, the cause for singing and rejoicing is that the Lord will send himself to be in their midst and he will dwell with them and he will be their God and they will be his people and the nations will join. And who is this one? Well, this one can be none other than our Lord Jesus. Now, you want to ask a question, I can tell. Did Zechariah know what he was talking about? Did Zechariah have a clue? I mean, maybe he just flubbed. Maybe, I mean, you've written English papers before. No Hebrew papers, but it's easy enough to get a pronoun wrong. They're real small in Hebrew. This is just a little yod. Remember Jesus saying no jot and tittle? I mean, the, the, the me, first common singular pronominal suffix, that's a small little thing. It's nothing. I draw it for you, but it's nothing. So maybe he just got it wrong. Well, maybe. Who knows? And frankly, to my mind, who cares? This is what we have in the text before us. Did, Ze did Zechariah understand the full implications of what he said? Probably not. But as we go back to the Scriptures and read them again, we see that this dynamic about God's being, His oneness, but also a plurality of persons within that oneness 
is something that we have to deal with with the wording of the Bible itself. It arises from the problems that the Bible itself gives us regarding the character of God who is both one and indivisible and at the same time shares in a plurality of persons that it can be said equally and God sent me, that is, himself, into, into your midst. I love that text. It's fascinating. Well, you want to do one more? Sure. <laughs> Up Micah chapter 6. Let me get here to my... This is the last vision um, of Micah the prophet. Oh, sensitive time here. Last vision. It's number 8 of this 8 vision cycle. And it's a vision of four chariots, which shouldn't surprise us, right? Because how, was, how did the visions begin in Zechariah? With visions of the four horsemen. So here they're back again, but now they're, they're chariots. I lifted my eyes, verse 1, and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. That's pretty awesome. I mean, what, what's the, the implication there? Well, bronze was a, a highly valued metal, but it was also a military metal, and quite likely these mountains seemed to intimate the gateways of heaven. I don't know how else to picture this other than Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, Mordor kind of stuff. I mean, here these horsemen come out from the bronze mountains. The first chariot has red horses. The second has black horses. The third has white horses. And the fourth chariot, uh, uh, dappled horses, all of them strong. Again, that's what the English translation said. We don't really know what that means. All of them something. We'll say strong. That'll work. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and he said to me, These are going out through the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So here you have these four chariots that have been before the presence of the Lord and now they've been released from the presence of the Lord to go out over the four corners of the earth, which in effect means everywhere. The chariot with black horses goes toward the north country. That's bad news for them. And you know where the north country is, right? The north country in the prophets is typically Babylonia or Babylon. So here the black horse goes to visit Babylon. And if you've read anything about the history of Babylon, that was not a happy meeting. Thank you to the Persians, right? So there they go up and the black horse goes to the north country. The white one goes after them to the north country. The dappled ones go toward the south country. And then you go, well, what happened to the fourth horseman? Don't know. We just kind of went somewhere. I guess went on holiday. Um, but it's one of the things that's really just peculiar about this text. Where's the four, where did the fourth horseman go? He don't, don't know. He's just gone. So when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What does that mean, set my spirit at rest? Well, you remember from the beginning of the book of Zechariah that God had his crosshairs on Babylon. They were the means by which God executed his judgment on Judah in the 6th century. That's how God executed his justice against his people. But what did he say in Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 2? But they went too far. They took it too far. And now they're culpable. So here you have God's own spirit, his own ruach, his own spirit being at rest because he is done his deed with the north country. Well, into verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. And you want to say, who are Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah? And I would say, I don't know who they are. 
There are three men who arrive from Babylon. And if you remember, once the exiles were allowed to come from Babylon back into Jerusalem to rebuild the cities, many stayed back. Um, there was a strong Jewish community in Babylon um, for a very, very long time. Um, so many of them uh, stayed. They didn't want to go back. And go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, uh, the son of Jehoazadak, the high priest. So they make Joshua now the high priest. And this is the part that I wanted you to see. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. It's fascinating. This, I'm just going to lay out my cards for you. This is not being spoken about Joshua, the high priest, or Zerubbabel, the king. This is something other. This is fog and smoke here. The man, thus says the Lord of hosts, there's a man whose name is Zemach, is the Hebrew word. The branch. That's a personal name. It's not a descriptor. It's not an appellation. That's the name. His name is the branch. That was a popular name for a while, wasn't it? People named their boys branch. Didn't people do that? Forest and branch and tree. Anyway, so this one's name is the branch. Why? For he shall branch out of his place, or he shall branch out from under him. This is interesting. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. And it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. He's a king, this branch. And this whole notion about something coming out from under him, and I, I'm sorry I lost time so I can't pursue it, but Jeremiah 33:15, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, these are all intimations to my mind of the Davidic covenant where a, a tree gets cut down, but a root and a branch comes out from it. God's promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David is there will be a throne, there will be a Davidic king from your line on the throne forever. Well, here he comes. He's the branch. But notice this. And there shall also be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, I can't really trace this out too much in detail here, but the nature of the language suggests, to my mind, and there's commentaries, I can appeal to authority for this as well, but suggests that when it says between the two of them, it's not referring to two different figures, but two different offices of the same figure. In other words, this zamach, this branch, has both a royal identity and a priestly identity at the same time. A royal priest. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Chalam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Verse 15, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey uh, the temple of the Lord. What do we see here in this section? Well, we see something significant. We see that the promise of one who would come, a branch, would bear within his singular identity both the identity of a king, he'd be weighted down with glory and honor, but he'd also bear the identity of a priest. So he's a priest and he's a king. Those of you who've spent any time in classes that we've taught around here have heard this before, so you'll have to forgive me for repeating myself. But this is, I think, one of John Calvin's great gifts to the history of Christian thought. 
And that is his close reading of the Old Testament and its own valuation, its own reification of the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king as being central to Israel and Judah's life. Prophet, priest, and king. And Calvin's close reading of the Bible and his close reading of, of the person and work of Jesus shows how those three offices come together in a unique and profound way in the person and work of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Now, we need a prophet. And how is Jesus a prophet? Well, he's a prophet unlike any other prophet because he both brings the word of God and he is the word of God at the same time. He's our king because unlike any other king, he represents us to the Father. He represents us to God as God himself. He's our king. And of course, you know the descriptor that was placed over the cross when Jesus died. This is the king of the Jews, which was Pilate's most profound statement of truth beyond, again, the realms of his own intentionality. And then you have the third notion, which is Jesus as a priest. A priest who stands forever before the throne as both our exalted king, as both our prophetic word, and as also our priest who forever now lives to intercede on our behalf. So it seems to me that this whole notion here about a temple being built in the future and a, a, a figure who will rise out of the midst being a zamach, a branch, who's both royal and priestly at the same time, anticipates for us something rather significant um, in the person and work of Jesus. And what does that do for us? Well, you do know this, right? God fulfills his prophecies in the ways in which he wants to. Now, that, that bothers some people because they want to figure out things and they want to get it all worked out in the charts. But unfortunately, charts will fail us because God gets to do things the way in which he wants to. As one of my colleagues says, who does he think he is? God or something, right? <laughs> but he gets to do that. And in his fulfilling of his promised word in the person and work of Jesus, what we see as we look back at a book like Zechariah are these intimations, these adumbrations, these proleptic looks look forward to what we should expect in the coming days. And that is one who would come, who would bring the Davidic hope and who would also bring the priestly office all into one dynamic personal character who is also the one who could be identified as God himself. And Zechariah creates all of this in a powerful tapestry um, uh, anticipating for us how things would unfold as these things develop in time. So Lord, thank you for a book like Zechariah. It's just fascinating and interesting and rich. It's challenging. Um, But Lord, we're grateful that in the season of Advent, we know that you have made good on your promise to give us a king, to give us a priest, a king forever and a priest forever. You've made good on your promises, Lord. And in this season of Advent, help us to trust and to hope that you will make good on your promises in the future as well. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.